Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. So welcome to another episode of the CNS Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast. My co-host, Dr. Seth Oliveria, and I, Roshna Ali, are excited to hear our guest speaker today, Dr. David Akafo, who is a professor of neurosurgery and director of the Neurotrauma Clinical Trials Center at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also a director of neurotrauma program at UPMC Presbyterian and past chair of the WNS-CNS section on neurotrauma and critical care. He has published more than 350 papers in uh, refereed journals, authored numerous book chapters, and holds multiple research grants. We are extremely excited to talk about aggressive care for traumatic brain injury, action versus nihilism in neurosurgery. So welcome, Dr. Conquo. To kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about the current landscape of traumatic brain injury here in North America? Rushna Ali, thank you for the invitation to join you this evening. It's fantastic to engage in a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is what do we do for the patient with traumatic brain injury? Traumatic brain injury remains a significant public health issue in the United States and beyond. It is a disease entity where 4 million Americans seek an evaluation in an emergency department every year. 2.8 million Americans are diagnosed through those emergency room visits with a traumatic brain injury. It's the leading cause under age 45 of death in the Western world. And uh, we have over 250,000 hospitalizations for traumatic brain injury each year in the United States. We as neurosurgeons are, are confronted with this across the entire spectrum from concussion to coma. It's also something that I experienced in my, in my clinical practice across that full spectrum, whether it's evaluating the concussion on Sundays on sidelines for the NFL, or whether it's taking care of the patient in the ICU who's trying to die. One of the most amazing realities of traumatic brain injury care in the United States is that the type of care and the quality of care that you receive is dictated most by your zip code. And we have massive inner center variances across the landscape of care in, in the US and in North America and beyond, frankly. Um, but we see this play itself out over and over again. And this likewise plays itself out on the concussion and, quote, mild traumatic brain injury side of things just as much as it does uh, in the ICU. But if we, if we spend more of our time talking about the patients who are in the ICU who have life-threatening forms of traumatic brain injury and who are in coma, that's where we start to see these pretty dramatic splits. Um, we have the one side that says, we're going to attack this disease aggressively. We are going to try to maximize outcomes by doing as much as we can for, for patients. 
And then you have a, another viewpoint that that tends towards significant more pessimism and uh, and and a a tendency towards doing nothing because of a uh, an outlook that it's difficult for us to modify the disease process. And that ends up playing itself out center by center, in addition to practitioner by practitioner. And therefore, in, in 2023, it's a pretty scary thing in the United States that that the type of care you receive is principally dictated by your zip code and the hospital to which you are brought by a helicopter or ambulance. So how do we go about addressing this uh, this disparity um, that we have in uh, the sense of nihilism uh, about the prognosis of moderate to severe TBI patients? Yeah, you know, there there actually is quite a bit of an underappreciation for how well patients do following these injuries. I'm reminded of, of a study that was done a few decades ago now in Switzerland where they took 100 consecutive patients with severe TBI brought to an emergency room and mapped out who was, um, uh, according to the neurosurgeon who saw them in the emergency room, they asked that neurosurgeon to say, hey, which of these people are going to die or be in a vegetative state, which are just going to be disabled and which will go on to, to return to independent living. And neurosurgeons overestimated bad outcomes by 50% and underestimated good outcomes by 50%. And that study has been repeated in a couple of different ways, but it turns out that if you particularly look at the first 24 to 72 hours, we are outrageously bad at predicting how patients are going to do. And yet we make those major overarching decisions immediately right there in the trauma bay that end up dictating whether a patient does or does not have a fighting chance. And so when I think about this push-pull between nihilism and existentialism, you know, the nihilist says there is no God, no heaven, no hell, so screw it. There can be no right or wrong. The existentialist says, okay, if I grant you the premise that there is no God, no heaven, no hell, then you and I alone must figure out how to make life meaningful and good. And if we start with that philosophical premise, I probably want to go party with the nihilist in Vegas, but I probably want my health care delivered by the existentialist. And unfortunately, because of this creep of nihilism into the clinical approach of patients, not just with severe traumatic brain injury, but with many neurosurgical emergencies, that nihilism still has an outsized effect on decision-making in care for patients with severe traumatic brain injury. And as a result of that, we have so many patients who otherwise could have had an exceptional outcome and never even had a chance to show that they were gonna make an exceptional outcome. That, that's really interesting. And, you know, it's a big topic, but is there data to guide you in that time or do you just treat everyone aggressively? How, are you, is that data well, driven? or just I think, I think there's a lot of really outstanding work that's going on trying to 
leverage things like uh, AI and machine learning to to capture very, very large amounts of data beyond what a, a, a single practitioner can do in the moment to try to guide those things. Uh, those efforts haven't reached any degree of maturity to be introduced into clinical care. We have we have other efforts where uh, people are trying to use blood-based biomarkers to start to parse out the severity of the injury that's uh, that's presented in front of us. And I think there's some really interesting and compelling data in that space, but that too is not quite at a point of, uh, of being able to influence care on a day-to-day -day basis at, at this point. I think the bigger data when you comes when you actually just look at center performance. And Alexi Turgeon is a neurointensivist in Quebec, and he uh, leads the Canadian Clinical Trials Study Group. And they did this fantastic effort where they looked across these various ICUs in Canada, and they looked at the frequency with which those ICUs engaged in withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. Because the single most common reason to die of a traumatic brain injury is withdrawal of care. It's not the disease. You don't die of the disease. You die because we quit. And then when you look at the centers with high rates of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy in their ICUs, those are the same centers that have very high rates of mortality following traumatic brain injury. And in the centers with lower rates of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy, there's lower rates of mortality from traumatic brain injury. It's the, it's the center to which you were brought that actually is the principal driver of your mortality as it stands today. So speaking of, um, of evidence, Dr. Conquill, can you summarize the current evidence that does exist that supports aggressive care for TBI, including uh, decompressive craniectomies in TBI patients? What is the ideal timing? Who is the perfect patient? What type of crany might be more effective? Yeah, and the, that's a great question. And um, I'm so proud of neurosurgery at, at, by and large because uh, we have really committed ourselves to increasing the rigor and the quality of the work that's done from from, from a research perspective. And in so many disciplines in neurosurgery, the data is just becoming stronger and, and more convincing and clearer about how to actually guide care for, for patients. And traumatic brain injury is no exception to that. We've had a series of really spectacular prospective randomized clinical trials on this very topic of decompressive craniectomy. It's a topic that keeps getting circled back to because when you're trying to save lives, this is this is the, the principal decision that has to be made most frequently right there in the trauma bay is, am I taking this person to the operating room for their intracranial mass lesion? And when we look at, um, at these clinical trials, we've learned so many fabulous and amazing things, not just about what the impact of intervention is, but also about what the weakness of clinical trials as they stand today are. Okay. So what do I mean by that? Well, We've had two studies um, led by Peter Hutchinson out of Cambridge, neurosurgeon who's had truly an outsized influence on neurotrauma over the last quarter century. He did the rescue ICP trial and the rescue acute subdural hematoma trial. And the rescue ICP trial was patients in the ICU with severe traumatic brain injury with 
persistent intracranial hypertension randomized to continued medical management versus um, um, uh, decompressive craniectomy. And it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. And the challenge with that is that the New England Journal of Medicine only allows you to report the primary outcome measure in the abstract. And over 95% of readers only read the abstract. So if you only look at the abstract, what do you what did you learn? You learned that decompressive craniectomy produced similar outcomes to medical management at six months. But it turns out they followed people for a year. And while at six months, decompressive craniectomy had lower rates of mortality, higher rates of vegetative state, and similar rates of good outcomes, by one year, it became very clear that decompressive craniectomy produced higher rates of good outcomes and return to functional independence. And so I don't know about you, but I'm more interested in my one-year outcome than my, than my six-month outcome. Uh, but the New England Journal only allows you to mention the primary outcome measure, which in that respect was, was at six months. So that was the rescue ICP trial. The rescue acute subdural hematoma trial was different. And it's another thing that all of us face who take care of this population all the time, which is you've taken someone to the operating room, you've evacuated their subdural. Now you're staring at their brain and you're wondering, do I put the bone flap back on or do I leave it off? And in this trial, another randomized prospective trial, there had to be equipoise because those moments when the brain is mushrooming out, no one's going to agree to randomize that person. So it had to be that in the moment, the neurosurgeon felt there was equipoise of whether to put the bone on or leave it off. And then a coin was flipped to randomize the patient. And likewise, in that in that trial, there were similar rates between decompressive craniectomy and craniotomy, similar rates of good outcomes, similar mortality rates. Um, there were higher wound complication rates in the craniectomy group, and there were higher rates of reoperation in the craniotomy group, which I think all of that makes sense and fits with what all of us have lived with this. Um, but what that trial taught me was that when there is an equipoise, leave the bone off. And when there is equipoise, boy, I'm still I'm still in a difficult pickle here because it's not perfectly clear what's what's the better answer. But that was a great trial to give me a little bit more confidence to put the bone back on. But let's back up one step first, and then we're going to flash forward one step. We back up one step. We have to remind ourselves that that trial was about people who were actually taken to the operating room. And so let's commend the people who were willing to take this patient to the operating room in an effort to save their life. You weren't eligible for the rescue acute subdural hematoma trial if you weren't brought to the operating room. So kudos to these, to these surgeons and to these centers who were taking people to the operating room in an effort to save their life. And then on top of that, trying to help us understand decompressive craniectomy versus craniotomy in those moments when there's equipoise. But the other thing that these two trials and then the DECRA trial and Randy Chestnut's best trip trial and so many other trials in severe TBI, there's one other major, major flaw, in my opinion, of all of these. And that is that mortality is used as an outcome measure. And I already mentioned that the single most common reason to die isn't because of the disease. It's because of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. 
And the most common time frame for withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy is within 72 hours. That means that when we use mortality as an outcome measure in a traumatic brain injury clinical trial, or take out the word traumatic brain injury and insert subarachnoid hemorrhage or major stroke, you know, major hemorrhagic stroke. When you use mortality as an outcome measure, what you're actually measuring is the intercenter variance of nihilism instead of the effect of the intervention. And so one of the things that, that I have come to, to view in this is that we need to do a better job of educating our statisticians and we need to do a better job of standing up for our patients and saying that we actually have to have a cold, hard look at ourselves as to whether mortality is a viable outcome metric in these clinical trials. And I'll add one more piece to that. And it's the following. One of our residents, Hanson Dang, just recently received the paper of the year from the Red Journal um, about uh, in, the, in the field of neurotrauma for, for a publication that we had this year. And what, what we did was we looked at our own experience and we systematically track everybody who comes into our hospital in coma for an extended period of time. And we took all the people that we had taken care of with severe TBI who survived and who lived to two years and returned to functional independence. Okay, so these were people living at home. We took the people only who made it back home and we worked backwards and figured out how long it took those people to follow commands on average. And what was the answer? 12 days. So the average severe TBI patient who not only survives their injury, but returns to functional independence, took 12 days to wake up from coma. And yet the single most common cause of death is withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy in the first 72 hours. It's crazy. And it's a real problem. And it goes right back to this nihilism versus existentialism. And whom do you want as, as your doctor? Because I'll take the existentialist every time over the nihilist when it comes to my healthcare. So, so just as a practical point, I'll ask you before we move on to some other questions. Uh, so, so for our listeners, who's the person you're not taking to surgery? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not taking the person with bilateral fixed and dilated pupils who uh, has absent brainstem reflexes. Okay, and uh, and by the way, that needs to be a neurosurgical exam, not an exam that's told to you over the phone, because of the countless examples of 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 someone not quite getting it right who whose career focus isn't on the careful neurologic exam right so that's that's a big deal and we have to remind ourselves that the single most common gcs in the severe tbi population is 3 so if you notice i didn't say the person who is gcs 3 with fixed and dilated pupils and absent brainstem reflexes i left that out intentionally uh because the most common GCS is three, and that 
GCS of three is manufactured, right? It's an artificial, it's an artificial GCS because of, of usually pharmacological intervention, rapid sequence intubation or sedation, or sometimes it's because of the intoxication or, or, or illicit drug use of, of the patient. Um, so we have to be careful about, uh, about an over-reliance on the GCS itself as a single data point in that moment in, in the trauma bay. Um, uh, but we all we all start to develop our own approaches to this. And, and I think the difficult thing is when there is a very liberal application of who won't do well, because that's where you'll be proven wrong again and again and again. And so our institutional approach is, is to be very, very aggressive. And then uh, to let the situation declare itself in the days ahead, not in the hours ahead, but in the days to weeks ahead. And I communicate to the to the families straight away. I make sure that they understand we are going to do whatever it takes to do what's best for your loved one. But we're also in a very, very challenged position to understand what the implications of this injury are for your loved one in the short term or the long term until we get to the end of the first week. And it often takes us a full two weeks to understand exactly what we're dealing with. But if two or three days later, you realize this person is a genuine GCS3 off sedation with absent brainstem reflexes, you know, it, it, it's an okay thing to start having those different conversations. But having those conversations in a trauma in the trauma bay will lead to bad decision making. You've been closely involved with the National Academy of Medicine's forum on TBI. Can you share your perspective on how that effort can change the practice in the US people who um, have sustained severe uh, TBI? Yeah, that, that this is an effort that's that's likewise very near and dear to my heart, and I I applaud the National Academy of Medicine. This was an effort that was kickstarted actually by a grant from the Department of Defense uh, to start this conversation. That then got built into a coalition of of uh, public and and private um, funders to to spur this effort through the National Academy of Medicine. That has led to a forum on traumatic brain injury. And one of the key tenets of this is to highlight the systematic gaps in care that exist in the United States for this patient population. We are light years behind stroke, which has you know done really a, an amazing job of creating uh, the parameters that would lead to your being designated as a stroke center and to start setting standards and expectations of performance for centers to say, yes, we are a stroke center and we can take care of, of even the most challenging strokes. There is nothing to that effect in the world of traumatic brain injury. You know, when you start thinking about the, the, the more concussion side of the spectrum, we know that these patients have ongoing issues many times for months and months. Um, yet the most common thing that happens to a patient who is admitted to the ICU with a positive head CT, but is a GCS 15, do you know what the most common follow-up visit is for that patient? Nothing. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. You were admitted to an ICU 
with a positive head CT and you're not even given a phone number to call when you leave the hospital if you're having a problem. So we are we are we are starting uh, to work with you know some really brilliant people um, in 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 the U.S. and beyond to start to clarify, define, and catalog what what excellent care in TBI looks like, what you should be doing as a center if you want to engage in this in this patient population. And and uh, it's an effort that that has been ongoing for a few years now. We still have a few years worth of work left to do. Um, but our, our goal is really to spur a, a public health change, a, a public health paradigm shift uh, in the approach to the care and management of patients with traumatic brain injury. Well, thank you, Dr. Conkle, for for bringing uh, TBI to the forefront and for all of your ongoing efforts in helping us do a better job of taking care of this incredibly vulnerable uh, population. And, you know, we could keep going, but unfortunately we're coming to, to, the, to the close of this podcast. So thank you very much once again for this phenomenal discussion uh, and to our listeners for tuning in for this podcast. Please follow us on social media at Rushnali6, at Seth Oliveira, and at CNS Update for upcoming podcast episodes and other educational material. Have a great night.